If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 23. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 16. Page 16. As you're going there in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verse 11, Moses writing, calls the promised land of Canaan a land of hills and valleys. Hills and valleys. Uh, spiritually speaking, we can see that this, this means uh, ups and it means downs. Here in chapter 23, we're going to read, and we started to read about the death of Sarah. In chapter 24, we're going to read about the wedding of Isaac. And in chapter 25, we're going to read about the death of Abraham. Hills and valleys. The Christian life can be described in this way as well, can it? As each of us knows something about hills and something about valleys, triumphs and tragedies, births and death, joys and grief. But for the Christian, all of that with hope. Chapter 23 is not the first death recorded in the Bible, but it is the first burial that is recorded in the Bible. Look at verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at a place that's called Hebron, I'm not going to try it twice, in the land of Canaan. As the Bible unfolds, we find that Sarah was an important woman in the the narrative of the Bible. Uh, One writer says that she's the only woman in the Bible whose age, death, and burial are all recorded. In chapter 17, she is called a princess. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 20 through 21 through 31, she is used as an illustration of the new covenant of grace. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, she is is given as an example of a godly wife for how she treated Abraham. And though, as we have already looked at, we can point at Sarah's failures. There were failures. We remember her treatment of Hagar was not good. Remember her uh, decision to have her husband go into Hagar in order to have a child was not good. Uh, We remember her unbelief in laughing when God told her that she would have a child. Not good. All of these evidences of lacking faith, and yet that is not what what was defining her. Those moments of lacking faith did not define her. In fact, when we get to to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, we find that she is included in this great chapter on faith, Sarah, who we could point at all of these failures, was included for her faith. She was actually known for her faith. Chapter 11, verse 11 says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So though she had lapses of faith, Hebrews 11 is telling us that that she considered God faithful. The one who had promised her, she had considered him 
faithful. And yet here we see the death of Sarah. It reminds us that the death is an actuality for all people. It's an actuality for all people. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 2 says, There is a time to be born and a time to die. And the reality is that until Christ returns, until that day comes, we each will face death. It is an actuality. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgments. The late pastor Ed Dobson once said, humans have the capacity to think they're going to live forever. He went on to say, you ain't living forever. None of us are living forever. And so in light of that reality, in light of our our, our coming death, we are to live now with eternity in view. We are to live recognizing that life is short. Doesn't mean we live morbid, morbidly, doesn't mean we, we walk around in, in, in sadness all the time, but it means that we use our days for what we are meant to do, what we are put here to do. We are to store up treasures, not, not for the, on earth, but treasures in heaven where moth and thief cannot destroy. Sarah died and we're told that she, dies, she died in faith. She was known for her faith, which makes all the difference for those who remain, doesn't it? When a loved one dies in faith, it makes all the difference. And yet, death still brings the reality of grief. How, how could it not? Look at verse 2, the rest of verse 2. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Ecclesiastes 3 also says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Uh, Some people are not so great with emotions. We're not quite sure how to handle our emotions. We're not sure when it's appropriate to cry or is that not something we should do. Uncertain how to express ourselves, even in the midst of grief, what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, so we think. But Abraham here has no hesitation, does he? No hesitation to to mourn or to weep for Sarah. That that is to lament uh, or or to cry. Uh, Sarah was 127 years old. She had uh, had been married to, to Abraham for many years. Some would calculate maybe more than 100 of those years they were married. It's a long time to be married. And she had Abraham had had been through a lot together. And Genesis only gives us certainly a snapshot of their life. But even in what we see, a lot of testing, a lot of triumph, a lot of hope, a lot of waiting, a lot of joys, a lot of sadness, a lot of times of faithfulness and a lot of times of unfaithfulness. They had traveled together from their homeland, left their homeland to go to, at that point, an unknown land. The Lord just called them to go. Go to a place that I will show you. And in faith, they went. Eventually, they came to the land of Canaan. And all by faith. They had sojourned in Egypt, we remember. They had used unmoral means to fulfill or attempt to fulfill God's promises. They had experienced the the pain of family separation. the, The pain of family conflict with Lot. The pain of 
marital conflict. They had weathered it all by grace. And then finally, as we looked at in chapter 21, they shared the joy of God's promised son, Isaac. Sarah had lived a full life with Abraham. And so it was entirely appropriate and normal that Abraham would grieve for his wife. One writer says, tears are a natural and proper expression of great grief. And certainly we see that here with Abraham. Notably, it is the first time in the Bible where weeping is mentioned. Many other of the references of weeping throughout the Bible are connected uh, with death, as we might imagine. So Abraham serves as an example to us. Uh, when we have a great loss, when we go through times of great sadness and grief, what, 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 what's the re response? And here he shows us to, to mourn and to weep is right. And not only did, did Abraham mourn and weep, we get to the New Testament and we find out that Jesus himself wept. We remember in John chapter 11, when his friend Lazarus dies, that Jesus wept. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes, a, a Jesus who, who never wept could never wipe away my tears. And he did weep. Weeping and mourning, grieving is good. It is right. It is part of, the, uh, is part of our, our humanity. It is part of recognizing that, that the world is broken and things are not as they should be. Francis Schaeffer says, I think it's a mistake as Christians to act as though trusting the Lord and tears are not compatible. As a matter of fact, it is my opinion that the greatest trust in the Lord comes when we trust him in the midst of our tears. Christians are to grieve. You are to grieve. You should grieve. You should mourn. You should weep. But Paul also then says to Christians that Christians are not to grieve as others who have no hope. So it's, it's not that we're not to grieve, it's that we're not to grieve without hope. For the Christian, there is hope. And hope makes all the difference in our grief. It makes all the difference in our grief. And since Sarah died in faith, again, Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham could have great confidence about Sarah, about where Sarah was. We get most of our teaching and our understanding about what happens at death from the New Testament. But the Old Testament believers seem to have trusted God that they would be received by him in death. In Psalm chapter 73, verse 24, the psalmist writes this, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. For the Christian, our hope is that to be absent from the body, this is the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. That's the hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian is that, that this is not all there is. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. 
That's the picture. That's the teaching. That's the instruction. That's the encouragement from the scriptures for the Christian. It's not... It's not so great for the unbeliever. The picture is not so bright. Job chapter 18 describes the death of the unbeliever like putting out a life, like trapping an animal or a bird, or like catching a criminal, or like uprooting a tree. None of these pictures are particularly beautiful. The hope of the Christian is that this is not the end. Death is real. Grief is real. But that's not where Abraham stopped either. Abraham didn't stop in his grief. Grief is real, but he didn't stop there. Meaning he didn't just live in the grief and and go not do anything else. For those who remain, they must carry on even in the grief. Why? Because they have responsibilities. They have responsibilities that must be done. Our lives continue Can we see part of that in the next, well, the rest of the chapter, actually? In the midst of his grief, Abraham has to negotiate a burial place for Sarah. We know that this must have happened very close together. Um, As verse 3 says, And Abraham rose from before his dead and said to the Hittites. So this is, we we are talking immediately. This is not days after, this is immediate. We'd also know that because burying uh, someone who is dead would have had to be done quickly. It would have been something that would have been delayed for, uh, for other reasons. And so pick it up in verse 4. Abraham has come to the Hittites. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Uh, The phrase bury my or your dead occurs seven times. The word bury or buried uh, or burying uh, occurs 11 times in total in these verses. It, It would It would seem to indicate that this is quite an emphasis uh, in this passage. Burial, or what we might call proper burial, refers to placing the dead in a tomb or in the ground. So when we use the word burial, that's what we are referring to. There are, of course, other methods of dealing with the dead, or dealing with the body of the dead. We won't talk about that this morning, but if you would like to discuss um, decisions about what to do uh, after death, about making uh, funeral or burial decisions, uh, I I would love to have that conversation with you, uh, obviously before, uh, before you would have to make that decision for yourself in, in planning or if you'd have to make that decision for someone else. Some of these decisions ought to be thought about ahead of time not in the moment uh, where it is, it is being forced upon you. My, my door is open. Uh, we'd love to have those kind of conversations. And though the Bible <clears throat> never commands proper burial, as we might call it, or what has been called Christian burial, I would like to share this morning just three reasons or three biblical principles for proper burial. 
And the first is because, because of the biblical and historical pattern of proper burial. Uh, throughout the Bible, uh, proper burial is how God's people dealt with the dead. Dealt with their dead. Now, we'll see multiple times just in Genesis of believers burying their loved ones. One, uh, one, uh, one writer says that on 200 occasions in the, the Old Testament, burial is mentioned as the standard disposition of dead bodies. Uh, Jesus, we know, was buried in a tomb, Matthew chapter 27. In Paul's writing, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he seems to allude of, of burial in the ground. In the Old Testament and the New, believers did not regularly participate in any other form of dealing with the dead. This was the normative practice, this being proper burial. The church, we know, has continued proper burial as a pattern. The second reason is because of its care for the body. Proper burial gives attention to the body. Now, now some may, may look at our, our bodies and say that it's, it's just a tense. It's just a, it's just a shell or it's just a, a husk that we're going to cast off when we die and our, our soul goes to be with God. Yet this minimizes the importance of the body. As you sit here this morning, you sit here as embodied people. You have a body. You have a body that God made for you and that God gave to you. So it is not unimportant. Proper burial takes care, takes great care uh, of the body. Uh, Russell Moore writes, for Christians, burial is not the disposal of a thing. It is caring for a person. Burial honors the body of the person. And thirdly, proper burial because, because, the, 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 because of the future of the body. A proper burial is in line with the pattern of Scripture and is done with an, an eye towards in a, in a recognition of the promise of re- resurrection. It says, by its very act, that there is more to come. Now, just to be clear, God will resurrect all those who have died in the Lord, right? No, no, no matter uh, the method of their burial. That, 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 that's not um, making it more difficult for God. That's not the point. But we do want to acknowledge and remember when the Bible talks about resurrection, what is the Bible saying is resurrected? The body is being resurrected. So the body is still important. The body actually has a future, your body has a future. They say, well, I thought we were getting a glorified body. You are getting a glorified body. But from what do, do we get the glorified body? From our body. Now, our, our new body will not be like the body that we have. That's absolutely true. Paul is pretty clear about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that there are natural bodies and there are spiritual bodies. But there is some measure of uh, continuation. There, there's some measure of, of similarity You'll remember that when Jesus was resurrected, some of them did not recognize Jesus. But then how did they recognize Jesus? By the nails in his hands and the hole in his side. So there was some continuity uh, between, between the bodies. 
The body's important, and God has a, a future for the body. Warren Wearsby summarizes the point like this. The body has a future, and burial bears witness to our faith in the return of Christ in the resurrection of the body. And so Abraham was looking for a place to bury Sarah. But he had a problem. And the problem was that he was a foreigner. He was not from Canaan, which means he did not have any legal ownership of any land. And though we've already read that God promised him the land, he had not yet taken ownership of the land. He did not, he did not have possession of the land of Canaan. So he had to request. He had to request land in order to find a place to bury Sarah. Sarah had died, as we said already, in Hebron, in the, the heart of Canaan. In the heart of Canaan is where she died. And so Abraham sought a place from the Hittites who were living there in that place, in that part of the land. And so because of Abraham's testimony, they called him a, a, mighty, a mighty prince. And because of his testimony among the people, they said to him, you can have the, the, of the choices of our tombs. We'll, we'll, we'll give it to you. We'll, we'll, let, we'll let you bury wherever you might want to be buried. But Abraham wanted his own place. He wanted to purchase a place. But this, this title, let's back up for a second, a, a prince of God or a mighty prince was foreshadowing something. Now, we'll remember that, that God made covenant promises to Abraham, namely for land, seed, and blessing. And we've already seen the seed in, 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 in Isaac. Now we're seeing some of the blessing. We've seen a little bit before, but even this, uh, one writer says this, this title, Prince of God, foreshadowed the covenant promise of blessing to all the nations. A Abraham was faithful to God, and he displayed God's grace in, in his sorrow, and in that, he's providing a strong witness to those around him. And so before we go on any further with, with Abraham, we just want to say um, that that holds true for you and me too. That it's actually in our grief, it's actually in the, the most difficult of times that our testimony is the most powerful. That our faith serves as a witness to who we believe in, to what we believe, to the faithfulness of God and to God's grace to us. Alan Ross writes, the time of death when natural inclination is to mourn as the world mourns, should be the time of greatest demonstration of our faith. For the recipient of God's promises has a hope beyond the grave. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And so they offer Abraham, you can have the choices of our tombs. And how does Abraham respond? Look at verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zorah, that he may give to me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For a full price, let him give it to me in the presence, uh, in your presence, as a property for a burying place. Now, we're going to see this word give used multiple times. Abraham's not looking for a handout here. And when they said, talk about giving, we're really talking about selling here. Let's just make 
clear um, what, what's happening. Verse 10, now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, uh, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. That's what he said, verse 11, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, give me the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may, let me, let me re- read that again. But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the, the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. There's a few things about Abraham's response here that shows us uh, his character. It shows us who Abraham was, again, even in the midst of quite a traumatic time for him. Uh, first here, we, we see that he is uh, quite civil, uh, quite polite in how he engaged with the people here, the, the Hittites. And though he had made an offer, uh, Abraham did not want a handout. And as Ephron made the offer, Abraham didn't want a handout. He, he wanted to own the land. And he took appropriate steps here. We see him taking the appropriate customary steps. Some of this stuff, you feel like, why are they going back and forth like this? This was customary uh, of how you would go about this arrangement or this negotiation. Um, and we see great humility here by Abraham. But, but not only that, we also see that he was just. And he was fair in how he did this transaction. He wasn't trying to get something for nothing. Right? Abraham wasn't trying to strike a deal. He wasn't trying to bargain the guy down for a lower price. He was open and he was honest about what he was requesting and he was willing to pay the price. In fact, Abraham says, tell me the price and I'll pay it, which isn't a great negotiating strategy, is it? I'm already willing to pay it. You already know what I want. I'm already willing to pay it. Just tell me how much you want for it. That's not a great negotiation uh, strategy, but that's not what Abraham was doing. He wasn't negotiating for a better price. He wanted to purchase the cave. And so he offers to pay the price before he even knew the price. And the price apparently was quite high, 400 shekels. Now we think of shekels as, as money, but at this time, denominations of money were not in, in effect. This is talking about weight, a weight of silver, which apparently was a, a, a very high price for the land. Now, some have thought maybe Eph, Ephron was expecting Abraham to kind of come back with his offer, a counteroffer. I'll set it here, he'll come back here, and we'll, we'll strike a deal. Abraham wasn't interested in that kind of exchange. It didn't matter to Abraham. He paid the stated price. We see that in verse 16. In fact, paying a higher price would remove any doubt about the legitimacy of the transaction. 
Everyone there knew how much he paid for it. And so it wasn't, there wouldn't be any questions about the legitimacy of Abraham owning what he has, uh, what he has purchased, that he has rightful and legal possession of the land. And third, we can see here in Abraham's response, uh, his wisdom, that he was careful, that he was, he was prudent in how he went about his dealings. He, he acted according to the customs that were uh, in play here for the Hittites. And we, we know this because um, business transactions happened at the gate of the city. And we, we see that twice in this, uh, in, in this chapter, verse 10, and then we'll read it again in verse, uh, verse 17, that it was at the gate. And what that means is that that's where public transactions happened because it was in the public. It was fully disclosed. There was no back room deals here. And since there were no written contracts, the, the public witness of the agreement was how the, these kind of agreements were recognized. Abraham's integrity here, we, we ought to just note it also, that his integrity and in how he went about his business is exemplary for us. Uh, his politeness, his fairness, his wisdom, his prudence, um, all serve to, to inform how we ought to engage in our own business dealings. Well, having paid for the land, it then became his possession. Look at verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittite before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mach Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. In verse 2, and then in verse 19, <clears throat> we see uh, that it, it is, is very clear that Abraham was burying Sarah in a certain place, in the land of Canaan. And the purchase of this land was in the land of Canaan. This, this cave that he wanted was in the land of Canaan. Now, why is that important? Because 60 years ago from this point, God had made a promise, a covenant with Abraham concerning land. And in a very partial way, Abraham now has a piece of land legally in Canaan. James Montgomery Boyce writes that Abraham's purchase was an expression of confidence in God's promise of land and future. But as we continue to read our Bible into the New Testament, we find out that Abraham's hope was not actually in the physical land. He actually had a certainty of hope that went beyond the land of Canaan. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1008. 1008, Hebrews chapter 11. And this is the great chapter of faith that many of us know about, where the writer of Hebrews recounts all of these 
men and women who lived their life in such a way that they were defined by faith. And in verse 13, chapter 11, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says this, all these died in faith, those that he has previously mentioned, namely Abraham and Sarah, not having received the things promised. Abraham did not receive all the things that he had promised. He had an heir, but it wasn't as the sand of the sea. It wasn't as the stars of the sky. He had a plot of land, but he didn't own all the land of Canaan. He was a blessing, but not in the fullness of the promise. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, they would have had an opportunity to return back to where they were from. But as it is, they desire a better country. Not the land of Canaan. Look at the next. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham and the children of Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, are referred to as foreigners, as exiles, as strangers in the land of Canaan, because they never fully owned it in the fullness that we understand. They were always looking ahead. They were always looking to a future hope. And here's what we could do. You and I are foreigners and strangers as well. This isn't our home. This isn't the country that we long for. And if you're longing for this to be your home, if you think this is the end, if you think that this is all there is, and you're putting all your hopes in this country or in this place, you will be desperately disappointed. The Christian's hope is not in a country. It's not in this country. We are not the new Jerusalem. We are living in Babylon, and we are looking forward from this present country to a better country, to a far-off country, to a heavenly country, to an eternal city where we will be citizens who live with God forever. In a place where righteousness where a place where righteousness dwells. Can, can you even, you can't. I can't either. Imagine that. We know what it's like to live in a place where unrighteousness dwells. Maybe increasingly so. But the hope of a future is a place of righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the hope. Abraham didn't understand all these things at that point in, in the history uh, or the, the, the narrative of, of the Bible. 
but he understood something. He looked to a, a far country. He knew that he would be received by God in some way. This is a place, we're told, in Revelation chapter 21, where death will be no more. Actually, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 says this. Let me just read it to you. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Abraham's tears wiped away. Your tears wiped away. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's the hope. And how can this hope be a reality? How can we have any, any assurance that this is actually very, very certain to us? Warren Wearsley makes this observation. Genesis ends with a full tomb. As we keep reading in Genesis, we find out that not only is Sarah buried in that tomb, but it starts to get a little crowded. Abraham's buried in that tomb. Isaac's buried in that tomb. Rebecca's married in that tomb. Leah's buried in that tomb. And Jacob is buried in that tomb. Full tomb. Wearsby continues. But the four, four Gospels end not with a full tomb. It ends with an empty tomb. In this life, the, the, the tombs are, are full. But Jesus came and he he put to death, death. Victory over the grave. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin, death, and hell. He conquered it. He, he took from it the, the sting of death. It brings hope of a future resurrection for all who die in the Lord. This is the great news of the gospel is that this is not the, all that there is. And that for the Christian, the best is yet to come. And it won't last X number of years. It never ends. That is the hope of the Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes about this victory, about this resurrection, about this hope and he says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, that's what we are, perishable, inherit the imperishable, that's heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not where it ends. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It changes everything. It not only changes our future, it changes our presence, knowing that, the, that in the Lord your work is not in vain. There is great hope, and it's not just hope after the grave. It's hope that affects today as well. Death is an actuality. Grief is a reality. But there is hope that is certain. Hope beyond the grave, all because of the work of Jesus. That is his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we grieve. Many of you have grieved and are grieving, as you should, but grieve with hope that this is not the end. Thanks be to God for the victory that he has given to us through his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we give great thanks this morning for hope. Without it, what, 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 what would we do? It would be as Paul says, if we have hope only in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Yet Christ has risen. And so, for, so therefore our hope is not only in this life, but in the life to come. So we give thanks for the work of Jesus. We're thankful that when we as Christians are laid to the ground, it's not the end. We await the, the coming resurrection to be reunited, body and soul, with Jesus. Give us hope today. May these truths encourage our heart even in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our valleys. May the certainty of the hope of Jesus guard our hearts, all because of the victory in Jesus. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.